Hello everyone and welcome to the Lights, Camera, Action Movie Podcast. On today's show, we'll be reviewing Star Trek. This podcast contains spoilers and strong language. Listener discretion is advised. everyone and welcome to the Lights, Camera, Action Movie Podcast. Mike Winkler here with you today to review the 2009 film, J.J. Abrams' Star Trek. Alright, let me first by starting this podcast by saying I have been a huge Star Trek fan my entire life. Um, growing up with Star Trek was one of the things that I greatly remember growing up, you know, between that and Star Wars. Um... My grandfather, he used to watch The Next Generation in syndication when it was a syndication series back in the early 90s. Um, my mom used to tell me stories about how he used to watch uh, the original the original series, the Kirk series, um, back in the late 60s and early 70s. And, um, you know, Star Trek has always had a special place in my heart with Star Wars. Um, two of the biggest sci-fi franchises, really, of all time. Uh, these between Star Wars and Star Trek, I, this is why I love the science fiction genre so much. It's why it's one of my one of my favorites. Um, you know, science fiction's always had a special place in my heart, and Star Trek and Star Wars have done that for me. And this is just something that I I love so much. So this review is going to be more more to my heart than a lot of other films uh, other than Star Wars. This is just, this is a, this has special meaning. So first, let me break down kind of the story of, of how this film kind of came into fruition because a lot of things happened in order for this in particular incarnation of Star Trek to be made. And it all started with Star Trek Nemesis. It was the uh, final Next Generation film, and for anybody that doesn't know, it's the Captain Picard, Riker, Data series. Um, Star Trek Nemesis, I still liked because it was still Next Generation. Next Gen has always been my favorite. So, at the end of the day, even a mediocre Next Gen movie is still a good Next Gen movie for me because it's just the cast, seeing them after so long, you know, not having the series anymore and not getting a movie, you know, for every three or four years. or I, I think it was a little over four years three or four years since we had gotten one, four years since we had gotten one from Insurrection, the Nemesis. And, uh, you know, not seeing this cast in four years, you know, still to me, still made a good Trek film. Now, if I look at it with open eyes, yes, there are weaknesses within Star Trek Nemesis um, that probably created a lot of the, the movie not doing so well at the box office. It also had to do with the fact that it opened up close to Lord of the Rings, which I believe was still a huge mistake on Paramount's uh, Paramount's decision making here. You know, opening it close to Lord of the Rings was a big mistake, and that's another reason why Nemesis opened so low. Uh, but it also had to do with that there was a lot of um, there's a after this movie came out and people had saw it, people had found out that a lot of scenes were deleted and a lot of important scenes were deleted, especially with scenes with Data. And Picard, and considering spoiler that Data dies at the end of Nemesis, these scenes would have created a great emotional impact for things to come full circle. And there was a lot of questionable decisions with a lot of scenes that were cut, especially if you watch the deleted scenes on the collector's edition DVD or the Blu-ray. 
you see there were a lot of good scenes here that should have been kept in the film, but they were so worried about keeping the movie within the two-hour mark that they actually ruined part of the film. They ruined the emotional impact that the ending should have had. If you had not really watched the series passionately, you wouldn't have felt felt the connection with how this movie had ended because these scenes would have done that even though... Uh, even if you had watched the series or not. So, after the film had come out, uh, even the cast had some backlash. They they spoke very unflattingly about director Stuart Baird. They criticized him for not watching any of the episodes of Next Generation, so that lost some connection. Uh, uh, Marina Sirtis, who played Deanna Troy, she blatantly called Baird an idiot. I mean, there, there, was, there were issues here. Jonathan Frakes, who plays uh, Commander Riker, uh, he praised both the character of Shiz- Shinzon Picard's clone and actor Tom Hardy, who played the role, and he had said that if he himself had directed the film, like he had done with the previous two Trek films, First Contact and Insurrection, he would have made the film less villain-centric and given more screen time to the regular Next Generation cast. Probably would have been a better idea, considering that this film was advertised as uh, Generation's Final Journey Begins. That was the tagline in the trailer. You know, Jonathan Frey should have directed this film because he had the emotional connection with this cast, and I liked both First Contact and Insurrection. Insurrection got a lot of shit. I don't know why. I thought Insurrection was a good Trek film. You know, people said it played too much out like a, like an episode of the series. So what if it did? So what? You know, this was a TV series to begin with. So what, so what if it felt like a, a TV episode? It felt like a big-budget TV episode, and I think a good one at that. So I don't agree with a lot of the fans on that one, so you can say whatever you want about me on that one. I don't really care. Insurrection is not a bad Trek film. It's not. Next-gen Trek film, nothing. It's it's good film, either way. So the Nemesis box office, uh, not so good. Uh, it, the, the film's gross uh, in the United States domestically was the lowest of the franchise at only $43 million as total. Not too good. Um it opened at number two in the U.S. box office. It was $200,000 behind Made in Manhattan. I mean, Made in Manhattan beat Star Trek Nemesis, a Trek film with a lot of sci-fi loyalists. Not good. I mean, at this point, there was some Trek fatigue. Um, Voyager was now off the air, Enterprise was on the air, and people really weren't... um, There wasn't a whole lot of strong opinion of Star Trek Enterprise. So they think that between that and the movies not coming out the way they were, there was some Trek fatigue, and therefore it became the first Trek film ever to not debut as the highest-grossing film of the week. It only ended up earning $64 million, uh, $67 million worldwide against a production budget of $60 million. So internationally, Nemesis uh, was most financially successful in Germany. So, I mean... There was issues. There was a lot of issues. In fact, there was a planned sequel during the production of Nemesis where a script was developed by the Nemesis writer John Logan and Data's Brent Spiner uh, for a fifth and final film featuring the next-gen cast that would have wrapped up the adventures of the Enterprise-E crew with tie-ins to historical aspects of the Star Trek franchise. However, the poor performance of Nemesis at the box office convinced Paramount that the franchise was suffering from franchise fatigue and the script was abandoned and so was the project. Which, in fact, more than six years later, Paramount had announced that they would be doing a new Star Trek film with director J.J. Abrams and writers Robert Orkey and Alex Kurtzman. 
when this film was announced, it was announced that this film would indeed be a young Kirk and Spock. Okay, so my feelings on this when the film was announced, I really wasn't sure what to think. I was excited more Trek was coming. Um, but I wasn't sure how I knew young Kirk and Spock would work. Because, you know, when the original series started, you know, Shatner and Nimoy, although they weren't young, young, that was kind of already kind of our youngish Kirk and Spock, especially since the movies was your older Kirk and Spock. So you can understand a little bit of the hesitation and full belief in this project because initially it was sounding like a reboot where we were going to get different stories and that it was going to change the continuity in the sense of it was going to ignore everything. That's what it sounded like. And Trekkies, like myself, don't want a reboot of the series, okay? Don't eliminate continuity. Trek is Trek. Plain and simple. You want to do something different with it? Fine. That's kind of what Star Trek Discovery is doing, but it's still tying in the current timeline and Season 2 is going to connect together. So that's how you do that. So Abrams, Orky, and Kurtzman, plus producers Damian Lindelof and Brian Burke, felt the franchise had explored enough of what took place after the series. So the good news here was that Orky and Lindelof were Trekkies. And they felt like some of the Trek novels had canon value, although Gene Roddenberry never considered, or the Roddenberrys never considered the novels to be canon. So, J.J. Abrams' company, Bad Robot, produced the film with Paramount, marking the first time ever that another company had financed a Trek film. In an interview, Abrams said that he had never seen Star Trek Nemesis because he felt the franchise had disconnected itself from the original series. Um... I don't know if that's necessarily true. Um, again, uh, Next Generation is different from the original series. I don't know if he was saying it as far as back as Kirk or whatever. But whatever the case may be, I don't necessarily agree with that. But whatever. So for him, he said Star Trek was about Kirk and Spock initially. And, you know, uh, and as a child, he preferred the Star Wars movies, you know, myself included. But, you know, he was a good fit for this project. So eventually, um, in February of 2007... Abrams accepted Paramount's offer to direct the film after being initially attached only as a producer. He explained that he decided to direct the film because he read the script, he realized that uh, somebody might change the vision of, of, how, of how things would go, so he wanted to direct the movie himself. Orky and Kurtzman said that their aim had been to impress a casual fan like Abrams with their story, but Abrams did say that during filming he was nervous with all the pointy ears and the faces, the tattoos, the all that other stuff, because he knew he knew it would work because Alex Kurtzman and Bob Orky wrote everything so emotional and so relatable. And initially when he was filming, he didn't initially love Kirk and Spock when he began the journey, but now he loves them. So it changed a lot of things in the development of the movie. So the movie began filming. We found out later on that this film would would be not a reboot, but would in fact be a prequel, quasi-sequel to Star Trek Nemesis. Because the movie starts out, or not necessarily starts out, but we find out that the reason why older Spock, played by Leonard Nimoy, he goes back in time. So we find out that 
Star Trek Nemesis, this is a sequel to Star Trek Nemesis in the, in the sense of older Spock tries to save Romulus from a supernova, which takes place in the, in the Next Generation universe, which there is a novel out there called Star Trek Countdown that connects all of it, and then he goes back in time. So this makes it a sequel slash prequel, and this allows uh, Abrams and Orky and Kurtzman to kind of do what they want with this universe and do things they want to do without really changing too much of the Star Trek timeline. So this worked out very cool, and at the end of it all, the film very much, very much worked out and and turned out to be a, a bona fide hit. So this resulted in a trilogy of films, Star Trek, Star Trek Into Darkness, and Star Trek Beyond, with a fourth film on the way soon. So, let's break this thing down here and there. So, the movie opens up, and we are treated with a classical kind of Star Trek opening. We're in the 23rd century, and the USS Calvin whizzes by the screen, and we see a lightning storm in space surrounding it. We're not sure exactly what's going on here, but I remember when this movie started when I first saw it in the theater and I was hearing the classical um, beeping noise from the view screen that was in the original series. I immediately was like, okay, this is already this is already working for me. This is already feeling like old Trek and um, I'm going with this. So as we're reading some of the crew, we have the Calvin's captain, Captain Robau. And Captain Kirk's father, George Kirk, who is the Kelvin's first officer. A Romulan ship comes through the lightning storm, called the Narada, and begins attacking the hell out of the Kelvin. This results in seeing the Romulans, and they want the captain's presence over there. We're not sure really what's going on here. Captain Rabaru goes over there. George Cook is put in com- George Kirk is put in command of the of the Calvin. Through the Narada dialogue with Rabaru, we find out that the captain of the Narada, Captain Nero, is looking for the older Spock, aka Leonard Nimoy. So at this point we know that the Narada came from the future. Rabau is confused and is killed because Nero doesn't believe him. This results in a full-on combat situation George Kirk is trying to navigate through while his wife, Winona, is pregnant in birth going towards an escape pod. George Kirk is not going to make it because the ship needs to be combated in order to save the save the escape pods. This results in George Kirk sacrificing himself for this for the survival of his wife, his unborn child, and the rest of the Kelvin crew. We find out that the baby that is given birth to is the one and only James Tiberius Kirk. With Tiberius being the father's name of George Kirk, we find out. But he doesn't want his son named that. So, now, this sequence is one of my favorites of 
almost every Star Trek movie. This opening is, is just fantastic. The emotional value of it all, the music, the visuals... Uh, this is just a great five to six minute opening, and what a way to bring Trek back. They open Trek back up with a bang, quite literally. And it just works on a lot of levels, emotionally, visually, um, storytelling, everything here is just perfect. And I can watch this opening over and over again and still feel the emotional impact even now after I've seen the movie, oh, 20, 25 times. It's, it's just, it still works, and it's, it's a great opening to the film. So here we jump up to 17 years later, and we see Kirk as a, I, I would say like a 10 to 13 year old boy. He stole his stepfather's car, and we're kind of seeing that renegade side to Kirk even when he was a child. Played over the Beastie Boys Sabotage song, which, believe it or not, is a good fit. And actually is reused again in Star Trek Beyond, which we'll get into into that podcast later um this results in a pretty cool scene um he, the car goes over the cliff kirk gets in trouble just like you know kirk always does now we jump the vulcan and we see a young spock who is being accepted into the vulcan science academy or as a child he's learning to become to join or to become graduating from the vulcan science academy we see that spock is got emotional issues he can be violent because, in fact, he is half-human. Um, so then we jump 17 years later from the young Spock. And this Spock, played by Zachary Quinto, is accepted to join the Vulcan Science Academy. But they basically criticize him and are surprised that he had graduated because of his disadvantage of being half-human because of his human mother, Amanda. You know... This, this, this really shows really how Vulcans perceive human beings pretty well. We've always gotten views of it in Enterprise and the original Trek movies and such, but this was kind of a neat little scene because we got a chance to see Spock receive the criticism full on, basically to his face, and seeing he does not tolerate this whatsoever. So we really get a good understanding of why he wants to be enlist in Starfleet instead of being part of the Vulcan Science Academy because he doesn't feel like he'll ever be fully accepted into the Vulcan world and he feels like he will be accepted more on Earth and in Starfleet. So, good little scene there. So back on Earth, uh, Kirk is now older, Chris Pine older, and he gets into a bar fight because he's flirting with Uhura, a young Uhura played by Zoe Saldana. And he gets the shit beat out of him. And this leads to Captain Christopher Pike encouraging him to enlist in Starfleet because he thinks that he can do what his father did, if not better. This is where Kirk, in fact, meets and befriends Leonard McCoy on the on the um, transport transport to the shuttle to uh, to Starfleet. But this leads to a before the scene. This leads to a really cool scene where. Kirk is on his little motorcycle-type crotch rocket, whatever the hell you want to call it. He's riding up to look at the Enterprise being built. This is such a beautiful scene. It's a great scene, and it's completely visual. All we have is the score, and the score is just... First of all, the score in this movie is is, is just 
one of the best scores I've ever heard. But during the scene, especially with this new theme and, and Kirk's just looking at the Enterprise with almost with tears in his eyes in a sense. His eyes are kind of watered up with kind of the awe of the Enterprise and maybe him being in command of a ship like that one day. It's such a great scene because it requires no dialogue. It's just visual and music combined as one. It's it, it's beautiful. It really is. And I love it. And I love that scene. scene. I remember when I first saw that scene first in the... Um, in the trailer, and when I saw that scene in the trailer, I loved it. So in the film, it just plays out so much better with the with the score over the top of it as well. Um, so after this, we jump three years, and uh, Kirk is taking the Kobayashi Maru test. Uh, as you know, if you're a fan, you know that Kirk ultimately cheats on the Kobayashi Maru in order to pass it. But this time, we actually get to see it. We see how. We see what happens. And we get to see Spock accuse him of it right in front of the whole council at the Starfleet Academy. Kirk argues that cheating was the was acceptable because the simulation was designed to be unbeatable, which makes sense because Spock, being the way he is, being as intelligent as he is, he made the test basically more intelligent than the average human or he is. But then he he explains that the, the the test wasn't necessarily designed to be passed. It was designed to instill fear and show that you could still command in a fear situation and show it and not let everything else, you know, the situation rule your rule your decisions, but fear being the ultimate test in this situation. So the disciplinary hearing is interrupted by a distress signal from Vulcan. Uh, prior to this, older Spock comes through a portal and is grabbed by... by uh, by Nero and the Narada, but so this leads to the credits being mobilized, and um, Kirk is being told that he cannot be a part of it because of his cheating thing, and he can't he can't be enlisted at the given moment until he is sentenced to whatever uh, hearing stuff is is done about it. So he uses McCoy to get on the ship, fake a fake an illness. Which this scene is just is just hilarious um, between the fat hands and the, the 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 slipping of the the big tongue where he can't talk freaking hilarious. <laughs> Star Trek is known to have many different parts of humor throughout the films in the series, but this one is remembered for being one of the funniest moments probably with all within Trek. So I applaud the uh, the writers for for this scene here and Chris Pine's performance in this situation is really good and so is uh, Carl Urban. Let me come back to Leonard McCoy, Carl Urban, for a minute. You know, as a whole here, you know, you have each uh, each actor trying to embody a character that was so that has so much um, history and is a classic character, and the, the, the the people that played them, you know, they're iconic. So how do you get actors to fill these shoes and still respect it and still look good playing it? I am glad to say that. Let me break this down. Chris Pine as Kirk is is great. Throughout each movie, between Trek to Inner Darkness to be to Beyond, he plays Kirk that much better. And by the time we get to Beyond, he has embodied Shatner almost fully. So Chris Pine does a fantastic job in this whole trilogy playing Kirk. And I love seeing the progression through each movie, how he becomes more and more like the Shatner that we know and love later on. Uh, Zachary Quinto just embodies. Leonard Nimoy in this because 
He looks like a young Leonard Nimoy. He acts like a young Leonard Nimoy. He plays Spock to perfection. If there's one actor that plays the, the one of these characters the best and is the closest to the original, it's got to be Quinto as Spock. Hands down, he's the best of the group. Nothing to take away from the rest of them. Um, Carl Urban as McCoy. I mean, he again really embodies uh, uh, DeForster Kelly. He, he really does. I mean, he, the way he does the iconic lines to, um, it's just, it's it's so good. I mean, you could tell that these actors, especially, studied these characters from before and tried to really do things that they did with, with, with making it their own at the same time. And that's very, very important. Very, very important. So, you know, I have a great appreciation for these actors for doing that. So as we go down the line, um, Simon Pegg as Scotty, again, he embodies this part very well. Uh, definitely, definitely embodying James Duhon here. Um, the only disappointing thing with this movie is that Scotty does not show up until about midway through the second act of the film, so we only get about mm, 35 or 40 minutes of him. Um, he's missing from the first hour 20 very easily here. and uh, But he comes in at a good time. I mean, he comes in at a perfect time. He steals the scene that he's in. Um, and he's given a lot more screen time, of course, in, in, in The Darkness and Beyond. But um, So, uh, Anton Yelchin as Chekhov is also really good. Uh, again, the Anton Yelchin passing is just greatly sad. And uh, Anton was a, was, a, was a great actor. Got a chance to see him in a lot of movies. Uh, and it's really sad to lose him because he really was a talent at such a young age, too. Um, may he rest in peace, uh, Anton. You really played the part really well. So, um... You'll be missed. So, as we go down the line, uh, John Cho is Sulu. Um, if there's one, one, I, one I had, I had to pick out of this, it probably would be John Cho is Sulu. Um, you know, he he's really not. He doesn't feel like a George Decay thing, and I'm not saying you have to copy it verbatim. But to me, he doesn't feel like Sulu. He feels like a new Sulu, in a sense. Um, and that's fine. I, I don't. I don't. I don't. It doesn't hurt the movie in any way. He he just doesn't remind me too much of George Takei. So, I mean, if anybody's the weakest here out of this group, it probably is him. Although he plays the part well, he is the least like the previous incarnation from the rest of them. Followed by uh, Zoe Saldana. I mean, Uhura. I mean, she's playing a sexier version of Uhura. You know, no, no. Uh, to all due respect to Nichelle Nichols, I mean, she really wasn't. Uh, I guess back in the 60s, she probably was the sex symbol of the show. When you compare it to nowadays, I mean, it wouldn't be so much anymore now. So Saldana is really playing a much sexier version of, of Uhura, and she pulls that off. Don't get me wrong. Uh, it's a very different Uhura. I mean, she's not really embodying it either. But again, with the updated Uhura, I kind of understand where they were going with this. So I don't think it overly hurts it. Overly hurts it at all. So... Overall, the cast is really good, uh, so I'm I'm really really happy with with what they did here in the cast, and I don't think they really could have casted much better than what they probably did. Okay, so let's come back to the movie here. So, um, the Enterprise after Kirk gets on the on the Enterprise after his um, faking sick uh, whole ploy by McCoy, um, 
The Enterprise arrives to the fleet uh, destroyed, and Narada is drilling into the planet Vulcan's core. Narada attacks the Enterprise, and Pike ultimately surrenders and is told to come to the ship, very much like uh, Captain uh, Nobaru was from the Kelvin. So they come up with a plan here. Kirk is, is, is prone to the first officer, which I know a lot of people have a problem with this because he's promoted so quickly. And the progression from him in this movie to cadet to first officer to captain is a little quick, and it has been heavily criticized. And yeah, it is a little bit of an issue. It does happen too fast. Um, but, you know, again, Into Darkness kind of fixes this a little bit, so I'm kind of glad that they heard some of the criticisms from the fans and they kind of fixed and changed it a little bit Into Darkness. So I don't heavily criticize it. And when I saw the movie, I didn't criticize it for this either. So to me, it's not a big deal. It's like some people will make it. So anyway, so he becomes first officer. They come up with a plan that Sulu Kirk and Engineer Olsen are going to perform a space jump and get onto the drilling platform to stop it while Pine goes to, uh, or, sorry, Pike goes to the Narada to talk with Nero. Um, during all this, great sequence here with the space jump. Uh, love this scene. The visuals, again, I mean, the visuals in this film are just fantastic. There really isn't one scene I can pick out in this whole film that looks fake. Everything looks legit. We're talking about Star Wars quality effects here. I mean, Paramount and everybody outdid themselves on this film because the effects are some of the best in any Trek movie. And some people will criticize me for saying that because it's the movie that was made last with all the effects updated. Yeah, that's true. But what I'm saying is is that the movie is just truly beautiful between the cinematography and the visual effects. It, it, look, it looks fantastic. As did Star Trek Nemesis. Every Trek film has looked great. But this one does look the best. It just has different visuals than the previous previous treks, and actually the the effects in this movie actually carried over into Star Trek Discovery, which Star Trek Discovery, oh the the visuals and cinematography in Discovery are just truly amazing, and you could definitely tell they took cues from these movies, especially the lens flares. Uh, they took you know things from that, and it just looks truly beautiful and looks great. So as they get down the platform, uh, Engineer Olsen is killed red shirt joke you know if you don't know about red shirt jokes look that up online that's why Olsen was killed it's the red shirt red shirt uh, red uniform joke so look that up um, but Kirk and Sulu disable the drill after a lengthy fight scene with some Klingons uh, not Klingons sorry man I'm screwing that up today um, Romulans Romulans so he fights the, they fight the Romulans they stop the drill, but it's too late as the drill is already dug deep enough for the red matter that Nero's created that creates a black hole in the center of a planet. He launches the red matter into the planet, which only leaves limited time for Spock to get down to the High Council and save his father and his mother and anybody else that's down there. Sadly, he does not get down there in enough time to save his mother, as when they're being transported, she falls off the cliff that crumbles down below her, and his mother Amanda dies. Now, as a lot of Trek fans know, this is huge for two reasons. Two things are huge here. One, Spock's mother, Amanda, dies in this film, which that does not happen in, you know, the original timeline. As we know, Amanda was around when Spock, you know, was resurrected in, in search for Spock after his, after his quote-unquote death in Wrath of Khan. You know, his mother was around. And, you know, now she's not in this timeline, which is a huge difference. And also, losing Vulcan. I mean, losing Vulcan here is, it's a ballsy step for these writers and Abrams to do here, because Vulcan plays an important part in a lot of stuff in the current regular timeline. So, they take huge, big step, big, 
big ballsy steps here. And you know, you re- you do realize in this moment in these movies that like, wow, anything could happen now. You really feel like anybody could die. Any anything could happen in in this timeline now, which is great because it allows nothing to be overly predictable at this point. So great steps there for for changing the predictability and and making us feel like this universe really could go anywhere. So the Narada has decided to move towards Earth. He's torturing Pike to get the information. Not working so well. Pike doing his best to hold down from giving anything even while he's being tortured. Uh, This is where things get a little interesting because Kirk and Spock really go at it here. And this results in Spock marooning him on Delta Vega where he runs into old Spock and, and Scotty. Definitely a twist of events. I mean, you don't necessarily wouldn't, wouldn't see Spock ever doing this to his friend, but at this point they're not friends, so, you know, whatever the case may be. So, Kirk encounters the older Spock, Leonard Nimoy Spock, who he, explain, he does explain that he and Nero are from 129 years in the future, post-Star Trek Nemesis. In that future, Romulus was threatened by a supernova, Spock's attempt to use the red matter that he created. So now we find out that the red matter was being used by Spock and the Vulcans to stop the supernova. So Nero has gotten his hands on the Vulcan slash Romulan technology. So Spock's attempt to use the red matter to create an artificial black hole to consume the supernova ultimately failed, and Nero's families perished on Romulus. So Nero, we find out that Nero's motivation here is Nero does in fact blame Spock for what is going on here. The Narada and Spock's vessels were caught into that black hole, sending them back in time to where they met the young George Kirk and the Kelvin, where they're at with the young Kirk and Spock now. And Nero ultimately stranded Spock on Delta Vega so he could watch Vulcan's destruction by the Red Matter. So, this is where Kirk gets the realization that Spock will eventually become, you know, him and Spock will eventually become friends. He has a hard time seeing it, but the emotional connection between Kirk and Spock during the, uh, the my mind to your mind that Spock does on Kirk to show him what happened with the red matter and and and, and the red matter and the uh, time travel situation. Um, he starts to see what he needs to do in order to get the Enterprise back, where he finds out he become captain, and so on and so forth. So they go to a Starfleet outpost on Delta Vega and they run into the young Montgomery Scott Scotty, played by. Simon Pegg. Great scene. Simon Pegg plays this role so well, as I've said before. And with the Elder Spock's help, uh, Scotty delivers a way for Kirk to beam back onto the Enterprise while they're traveling at warp headed back towards Earth. This leads to a fight with Spock. Kirk ultimately takes control of the Enterprise. Spock decides that he's emotionally compromised and can't do it anymore. The Kirk and Spock dynamic here is really cool because you get a chance to see a whole different side of Spock that we really never really saw in the original series. You know, he's full of emotion. We see more of that human side. And he gets very violent with Kirk to the point where he is choking the hell out of him. And the only person that stops him is his father, Sarek. I mean, this is a different Spock. This is a very emo Spock. Emo Spock here. So, I mean, this definitely changes a lot of stuff from what we've seen and loved. And this goes back to the predictability thing. Nothing's predictable in this film. Nothing that's going to happen coming forward is going to be predictable in this film. That's what's great about it. This is what makes this movie so original, is that there's nothing predictable about the things to come. 
It has flipped Star Trek on its head and spun it like a top. It really has, and this is what this is just this is just good for Star Trek as a whole. It gets the franchise out of the franchise fatigue and puts things back on a more clear and less predictable track. Um, I'm going to speed through here. So throughout all this, we start seeing Kirk's leadership with the crew. Uh, they go to Earth. They they go to fight Nero. Uh, Kirk and Spock go onto Nero's ship, try to stop him from drilling on Earth. We finally get the connection between uh, Kirk and Spock. We see the dynamic, the friendliness, the friendship, the protecting each other. Uh, the teamwork really starts coming to play here, and we see it foolhardy here. So after everything is said and done, Nero's ship is destroyed, Earth is saved, and the Enterprise barely escapes the red matter that they launched onto Nero's ship, and it zooms away in a very, very cool sequence with the music and everything. I can't I can't gush over the score enough. If you have not, if you're a big orchestra or soundtrack fan, do yourself a favor. If you do not have the score for this movie, Go to the store and pick it up, or go on iTunes and get it, because this is just a great score. It's just—it's a fantastic score. Um, so I definitely guarantee you pick that up. So at the end of the film, Kirk is promoted to captain, given control of the Enterprise. Pike has become an admiral, and Kirk chooses Spock to be his first officer. They fly into the sunset where no man has gone before as we're giving a, given a really, really cool send-off here where Leonard Nimoy does speak the where no one has gone before monologue before the Enterprise jumps away into warp and end of film. Um, I just want to give my overall thoughts on what everything I just went through pretty quickly. First of all, um, this movie moves at a very quick pace. The pacing is really good. And... Uh, uh, the action, the the, 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 the performances, um, some people have said that the story is generic. I don't think the story is generic at all. I think the story is very well told. I think the story doesn't overly complicate itself. I mean, the promos for the film were pretty, were pretty clear that this is not your father's Star Trek anymore. It's pretty clear. Um, Star Trek has changed. It's evolved into... Uh, into more of a um, mainstream audience type of film because I was actually greatly surprised because after I saw this film, you know, I went on Facebook and saw the news feed and there was a lot of people on my news feed that I saw that were seeing this movie and, and people that I never would have imagined would have seen a Star Trek film. People that I don't think probably were Trekkies and they were just getting a lot of mainstream people just flocking to this film because it just appealed to a wider audience. And this was the overall goal, I believe, by Abrams and the writers, that they wanted to apply to a wider audience. They wanted to make the film with Trekkie stuff, but also not make it too overly technical and using big words that mainstream audiences don't necessarily care for in a situation like this. So they really pulled it off, in my opinion. Uh, I know some Trekkies were unhappy that the movie didn't feel Star Trek enough, that it felt too simplified. You know, there's an argument to be had there. You know, I listened to that argument. But the fact of the matter is, the movie is a good Star Trek film. It tells a story, a very good story. You know, you get traditional Kirk and Spock. You have um, great space battles, great emotion with the characters, great family issues, and great actors playing these parts. This movie was beautifully directed by Abrams. Yes, some people will say the lens flares are too much. 
I like the lens flares. The lens flares make the movie look sleek and, and, and sexy. You know, it gives it that really updated look that this film is trying to achieve. You know, and, and, and if you have a problem with that, I mean, I guess the filmmakers gave into that because each movie following had less and less lens flares to the point where Beyond really had next to no lens flares. So apparently, you know, the the, the, the people won on that argument, I, whatever. I mean, I'm never one to give in. If that's the style I want to go with, that's what I do. As a filmmaker myself, I, I stick with my style. I don't really let people dictate to me how to change things. So that's just my opinion on that. So um, on some final notes here, I just want to break down some details you may not have known about some of the casting decisions that went into this. For instance, Chris Pine... Uh, to go for James T. Kirk, he Chris Pine described his first audition as as literally awful. Um, he himself he said he couldn't take himself seriously as a leader. He didn't feel like he could be the leader, you know, to play Kirk and and, and be able to embody that. Um, thankfully, J.J. Abrams did not see Chris Pine's first audition, as it was only Pine's agent that met Abrams' wife that the director decided to give him another audition opposite Zachary Quinto. Quinto was very supportive of Pine's casting because they knew each other from working out actually at the same gym. Go figure. After getting the part, Chris Pine actually sent William Shatner a letter. (laughs) And he received a direct reply from Shatner approving him to play Kirk. Pine was very, very good about doing his research as he went back and watched classic episodes and read encyclopedias about the Star Trek universe. But he ultimately stopped after a while because he felt weighed down by the feeling that he had to copy Shatner, which he didn't, but he also had enough of Shatner there to make him feel like Shatner. So Pine ultimately chose to incorporate elements of Tom Cruise from Top Gun and Harrison Ford's portrayal of Indiana Jones and Han Solo to embody on how to kind of play the part. (coughs) Also, everybody knows this, but Chris 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 Pratt also auditioned for the role. Very little side note there. So we move on to Quinto. Um, Quinto expressed interest in the role well before any of this actually went down for making the movie. People were talking about him looking like a young Leonard Nimoy back when he was on Heroes. I mean, I remember all the things, and I remember looking at him and saying, yeah, he looks like Spock. And when the movie got announced, I remember thinking, he's got to play Spock. Nobody else could. Thankfully, he was. And I think fan interest had a lot to do with that. So... Uh, there really is no question that he really was born to play the Spock role. I mean, it, it just he played the role so well. But another side note, too, Adrian Brody actually had discussed playing the role with the director before Quinto was cast, so it's very interesting there. Um, Eric Bana played Nero. Um, just a couple notes about him. He shot some scenes. He shot his scenes toward the end of filming. He wasn't a huge Trekkie when he was a kid, and he had not seen any of the previous films, even though he was crazy about the original series. He would not have accepted the role unless he liked the script, which he thought was awesome when he when he did it. So that's why he ultimately ended up taking the part. So as we go down the line here, uh, Zoe Saldana, uh, Carl Urban, you know, Carl Urban made sure he did things to, to embody DeForest Kelly. Zoe Saldana said that, you know, she really wanted to respect Nichelle Nichols' performance and she really wanted to nail different things that she did, and uh, she did a hell of a job. Uh, Simon Pegg, same kind of thing, uh, but Abrams actually offered Pegg the part by email, and 
one thing led to another, and Peg took the part, and he had to embody a completely different accent. Uh, the Scottish accent versus his British accent. So, so that's just a little bit of a, of a little bit of insight there. A um, little bit of details you probably didn't know about the film. Um, overall, the film was very well received. It actually ended up becoming the highest grossing, I believe, the highest grossing Star Trek film ever. Um, Star Trek actually opened to seventy-nine million dollars, as well as thirty-five from other countries. Uh, it ended up beating Star Trek First Contact to become the largest American opening for a Star Trek film ever. So, all in all, the movie ended up grossing $385 million. Did very well, had a huge draw. The critical response of it was, I believe it finished with a 94% on Rotten Tomatoes based on 339 reviews, which is mind-blowing. The film was so well received by fans and critics and the movie received a lot of accolades. Actually, it was even nominated for a Grammy for Best Score, which I told you before. Score's the greatest. Um, it was nominated for four Oscars uh, for Best Sound Editing, Best Sound Mixing, Visual Effects, and Best Makeup. It only won in Best Makeup, but it marked the first time a Star Trek film had actually received an Academy Award. So all in all, the film really proved that it had brought Star Trek back, and it was back and better than ever. Thankfully, the major cast members signed deals for two sequels, and later a sequel was announced and a third film to come with a fourth film that's coming out soon. So, all in all, a great success for Star Trek, and it was back full force. So me, myself, personally, I love this film. This film receives a solid 9 out of 10 from me. This is just a great Star Trek film. Uh, it's a great film in general, it's entertaining, it has great performances, it's emotional, great visuals, great cinematography, great music. There's not much for me to complain about this film, it's just it's just a great film overall. Um, so, But thank you for listening to my uh, little capsule brief review of the first uh, Star Trek film in the J.J. Abrams trilogy. Um, I hope you all have listened to Jason and I's uh, podcast on Avengers Infinity War. That was a lot of fun to do, but be prepared to sit for a long time with that one as it's over two hours long. But if you're a big Marvel and Avenger fan, you'll want to listen to it as we really fill you in on a lot of probably facts that you didn't know about it. Plus, really to see all the foreshadowing that really is in the film, it, it, it really is quite mind-blowing. So really give that a listen of our podcast. You'll, re- you'll really enjoy it if you're a Marvel and Avenger fan. Um, and please keep subscribing. You know, can't stress that enough. Uh, keep subscribing. Keep listening. We're on iTunes. You know, we're on CastBox. Um, we're having some issues right now with the Google Play Store, so we're going to try to get that back up and running. So um, as of right now, just follow us on our Facebook page, the Lights, Camera, Action Movie Podcast. Uh, just search Lights, Camera, Action, the Movie Podcast in the search thing, and you should find our page. Like it, and you know you can follow along with when our next podcast will be. We'll give you links to our podcast and so on and so forth. But subscribe to us on CastBox, search the same thing, and search for us on iTunes and subscribe as well. Please keep doing that because we can keep these uh, podcasts going. Um, I will be back soon with a podcast for Star Trek Into Darkness and Star Trek Beyond. Um, I know that Jason Kabasik and I will be working on the uh, Solo A Star Wars Story podcast either uh, this week or next week. So we'll be getting that out as soon as we can to you. Um, I will give you a little sneak peek that um, me personally, I loved Solo A Star Wars Story. So you already know my positive reactions that will be coming forth on that podcast. I'm not really sure what Kabasik thought yet. As far as I know, he has not seen it yet, but um, I'm hoping he liked as much as I did. Therefore, we can have a great discussion on it. 
Um, so I'm hoping he really enjoys it as well, and uh, we'll be bringing that to you guys uh, here soon. So uh, thanks for listening to the Lights, Camera, Action movie podcast. I'm Mike Winkler, and uh, see you on the next one. You are capable of deciding your own destiny. The question is, which path will you choose? James T. Kirk was a great man, but that was another life. They're locking torpedoes. Emergency evasive. Fire everything!